Please turn in your Bibles to James, the book of James. We're going to read from chapter 2. James chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 14 to the end. James chapter 2 and verse 14. Let us hear the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his word. Let us turn again in our scriptures to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 4 to the end of verse 12. Hebrews chapter 6, and we're breaking in at verse 4. Let us hear again the word of the Lord. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have, who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. 
For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the, same, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this reading of his word. If you would like to turn back to that passage that we read from the epistle of James, chapter 2, and verses 14 to 26, as we consider it this morning, the title that I have given to this sermon is The Christian's Proof of Identity. The Christian's Proof of Identity. <clears throat> There used to be a question asked amongst Christians years, some years ago. It became quite cliché, but I think it is worth asking from time to time. If you were charged for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I believe this question gets to the very heart of what James is talking about and what, uh, what he is dealing with in this part of his letter. What is it that proves someone's faith to be true, genuine, living, unsaving faith? If someone identifies as a Christian, what is the proof of their identity? This point in James's letter, he has been speaking about the testing of faith. He has been saying that the testing of our faith is what will demonstrate our faith to be genuine. Genuine faith in God will hear the word of God and it will do it, even in the face of the severest trials. James is saying that real faith will shine forth in, in these trials through obedience to God's law. His royal law. But as well as that, James is warning about false faith. James is warning that false faith will show itself in a blatant and quite often a disgusting display of disobedience to the law of God as is seen in the sin of partiality at the beginning of chapter 2. But at this point in his letter, James seems to be imagining some pushback by some of his readers. James is anticipating that someone will say, James, what's all this fuss about? Who are you, James, to say that someone's faith is not genuine because they simply don't live up to your expectations? But James, as we will see, simply points back to two Old Testament heroes. Two Old Testament heroes who demonstrated that their faith was genuine by obeying God in the severest of trials. Abraham and Rahab show us that real faith is displayed in self-sacrificial obedience. What is James doing in this passage? James is contrasting living faith against dead faith. He is setting a true and genuine faith alongside a false and as we will see, a demonic faith 
And he is going to show us what the difference is. And what is that difference? It is works. A dead faith will have no works. But a living and genuine faith will be demonstrated by works that it has life. What are these works? They are wholehearted obedience to God in the face of trials that cost everything. This is the Christian's proof of identity. And so firstly, from verses 14 to 17, we have a dead faith. A dead faith. James begins by asking a question. He asks, what use is a faith that doesn't demonstrate itself in works of obedience to the law? And James wastes no time. He gets straight to the answer. He says, such a faith is useless as it cannot save. And James then goes on to illustrate what he is saying. He asks us to imagine a scene. Imagine someone comes to you in absolute destitution. They've hardly got a stitch on their back and they're clearly emaciated with hunger. And James says, imagine you say to this person, go in peace, warm yourself, fill yourself. But James points out that in saying such things, your words are not accompanied with actual food or actual clothing. Now, if you saw this scene unfolding before you, you would want to scream out about the utter futility of this scenario. It is obvious that this person cannot warm themselves. It is obvious that this person cannot fill themselves. What use are your generous words if you don't give them food or clothing? What use are your generous words if they are not accompanied by generous actions? And James says, precisely. Generous words on their own, on their own, if they are not accompanied by generous actions, they're utterly useless. And so James says, the connection is faith by itself. If it does not have works, if it does not produce works, it is a dead faith. And dead faith doesn't save James, in his own typical manner, he loses no time in driving home a stark warning to his hearers and his readers. Salvation is by faith, yes. But there are different types of faith. Not every faith saves. James is warning some of his readers and hearers that they are in terrible danger because some of them are exhibiting a dead faith, a faith that is without works, a faith that has no proof of being real. This is faith that, as he points out in in an earlier part of the letter, this is faith that hears but does not do the word of God. It is faith that shows partiality. It is faith It gives the person a name of being alive when in fact there is no life in them whatsoever. There is a faith that saves but there is a faith that damns. Salvation is by faith alone but faith that saves is never alone. Faith that saves is always accompanied by works. 
saving faith, to use Jesus' analogy, is a fruit-bearing faith. James is giving a clear warning that a profession of faith is simply not enough. To simply claim to be a Christian is not going to cut any mustard in the sight of God. For those of you who are members here in this congregation, you may remember what was said to you and said about you when you came into membership. It would have been stated by the minister that you had met with the session and that you had made not just a profession of faith, but you had made a credible profession of faith. The session's job is to hear a person's profession of faith, but it is also to assess the credibility of that profession of faith. Even before men, even before a session made up of men, a person's faith must be shown to be alive. How much more then before God? James is telling us, he is imploring us to examine our faith. He is saying to us, as he would later say to the Corinthians, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith, because only a living faith is a saving faith. But James shows us that a faith that doesn't have credibility is not only dead, but is at best demonic. Because secondly, in verses 18 to 20, He presents us with a demonic faith. A demonic faith. In verse 18, James answers an objection that he assumes will come up. He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. This objection to us on the face of it can seem a little confusing. But it seems best to see that this objector isn't bringing up a logical argument against James. What this objector is doing, he is mocking James. James is imagining this objector rolling his eyes and in a mocking tone saying, Oh, listen, here we have the great moralist James. He's saying, you have faith, but I have works. Isn't James the exemplary Christian? The objector goes on, but James, didn't your brother tell us that it is by believing in him that we have eternal life? It's not by works that we are saved, but by faith. Surely as long as we believe, it doesn't really matter what our, work, what our lives look like. But then James brings a counter challenge to his objector. He says, okay, if you can have faith without works, Show me that faith, but don't use works. Demonstrate to me your faith without your works. And James's objector is immediately placed into an impossible situation. How can they demonstrate anything if it is not by the fruit, if it is not by works? It is only the one who displays faith by works who can, only, can, who can show that their faith is actually credible. But James doesn't simply leave it there. James takes the most basic element of the Christian faith and he uses that as an example. 
He says to his objector, Okay, you believe that God is one. So far, so good. But shouldn't that simple element of truth bring some action from you? And James says, Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. The demons believe that God is one, and they act upon it. They quake in fear. They tremble before God. But James points out, what he's really pointing out is, you don't even do that. You claim to believe what even the demons believe. They shudder in fear, but you display no fear of God whatsoever. And then he asks the question, do you still need proof that faith without works is useless? James would have been well aware of his older brother's words concerning faith and salvation. Jesus did certainly teach salvation by faith, by believing on him. But James would have heard the stories of how the demons trembled before before Jesus. These demons realized that they were in the presence of the fully divine Son of God. And James could not stand for one moment to have his brother, his master, and his Lord Jesus Christ misrepresented by these charlatans whom he is addressing. These people claim to believe in Jesus, but the demons demonstrated their fear of Jesus the King more than these people. James demonstrates so fully that dead faith Faith that doesn't even evidence itself in trembling before God is demonic. It's, in fact, worse than demonic faith. In other words, James is saying, if the demons' faith won't save them, how much less your faith, which doesn't even bring you to fear God? How desperate. How unimaginable is the plight of the one who makes a mere profession of faith? To be considered worse than Satan and his demons is beyond imagination. James simply cannot fathom how someone could think they have genuine faith when what they believe doesn't even bring them to fear God as much as the demons do. Such a faith doesn't come anywhere near being credible, being genuine. Such a faith is useless. Such a faith cannot save. How does the thought of coming into God's presence make you feel? For the true believer, the one who's, for the one who has genuine faith, it brings a sense of reverential fear. It brings a fear that is aware of God's holiness. It brings an awareness of our own sinfulness in God's sight. But it also brings with it an awareness of God's great salvation towards his own people. That's the believer. For some unbelievers, it brings a sense of unmitigated dread. But there's another class of unbeliever. 
There are unbelievers for whom the thought of entering into God's presence registers no reaction whatsoever. And in that class of unbeliever is often to be found one who has lulled their conscience to sleep with a false and empty profession of faith. Ask yourself honestly the question, does that describe you? Be careful that you haven't mistaken as full assurance what is actually self-deception. But James doesn't simply leave it there. He goes on now to show what true and genuine faith looks like. Thirdly, we see from verses 21 to 26, a demonstrated faith. A demonstrated faith. James calls in Abraham and Rahab as his prime examples of true and genuine faith. Both of, these, <clears throat> both of these Old Testament characters, they show us what true faith, saving faith looks like. It, they show us that living faith will demonstrate itself in works. Now at this point, in verse 21, but also in verses 24 and 25, James introduces a phrase that can sometimes make us a wee bit squirmy. He introduces a phrase that seems to go against all that we stand for as Reformed believers. You know what one of the great statements of the Reformation was? Justification by faith alone. <clears throat> but James says that both Abraham and Rahab were justified by works and not by faith alone. What are we to make of this? Well, what we must do is ask the question, what does the word justify mean? And when we ask that question of the Scriptures, we get the answer from the Scriptures that it can mean two different things. There is, first of all, if you like, justification number one. This is, ta this is the teaching of Scripture of the justification of the ungodly by faith. And what is the justification of the ungodly by faith? That is the declaration by God that someone is no longer under condemnation because they have faith in Jesus. They are declared to be righteous only on the basis of the obedience of Jesus Christ received by faith. That is the justification of the ungodly by faith. But there is in Scripture the second type of justification, the justification of the godly by works. That is the demonstration by works that someone is actually in a right relationship with God through faith in Christ. The first is a declaration of being right with God. And the other, <coughs> the other is a demonstration of being right with God. I use the illustration of the cow with the children to help us to understand this. I could use another illustration. Think of a tree. You may have a tree in your garden. You may not know what the tree is if you've just bought the house. You may not, un you may not know what the tree is if it's 
this time of year or winter time. It'll have no leaves. It might be hard to figure out what sort of a tree is this. And you can maybe ask a horticulturalist, what is this tree that I have in my garden? And the horticulturalist, because they know about trees, they will be able to declare this is an apple tree. They will be able to make the declaration that this is an apple tree. But how will their declaration be demonstrated to be true? Well, it will happen whenever the tree bears fruit, when it bears apples later on in the next summer. James is speaking. James is using the word justification in relation to the demonstration of true faith. James is saying that the one who has true faith, the one who has been declared by God to be in a right relationship with him by faith in Christ, this one will naturally demonstrate that relationship by the course and the conduct of their life, by their works. And then James fleshes out this particular meaning of justification by taking us back to that episode in the life of Abraham when he offered up Isaac on the altar at the command of God. James tells us in verses 22 and 23 that this act of complete obedience by Abraham, it did two things. It perfected, or it made perfect, or it, it completed his faith, and it fulfilled the Scriptures. How do good works make faith perfect, make faith complete? Well, in this particular case, the phrase to make perfect or to make complete, it means to bring something to its intended goal. So when James says that Abraham's work or his obedience to God's command made his faith complete, he is saying that Abraham's selfless obedience to God's command was the goal of Abraham's faith. Abraham was brought to faith for the very purpose of obedience to God's command. And Paul tells us this. He tells us that this is God's purpose in bringing every one of his children to faith in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 10 that we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Just like Abraham, our obedience to God, our good works, they make faith perfect. They bring faith to its end goal and purpose. But then the second thing that Abraham's obedience does is to fulfill the Scriptures. What was fulfilled? It wasn't a prophecy or it wasn't a command. What was fulfilled was simply a statement of fact. And what was that statement? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, this phrase comes from Genesis 15. This statement in Genesis 15 is God's declaration that Abraham is no longer under condemnation, but by faith has entered into a right standing before God. But the thing is, this was decades. This statement was made decades before Abraham offered up Isaac in obedience to God's command. What's the connection? How does Abraham's offering up of his son fulfill the statement from God about Abraham's justification by faith? Well, Abraham's offering up of Isaac confirms 
the truth of that statement. Abraham's actions verified. They demonstrated that what God said about Abraham was true, that he did believe God, that his faith was true and saving. James then sums this all up by saying that we are justified by works and not by faith only. Note carefully again what James is saying, or, or rather what he is not saying. He is not saying that we are declared righteous by God on the basis of our own righteousness, on the basis of our own works. But he is saying that like if Abraham we have real faith that saves If, like Abraham, we have real faith in Christ, then that real and saving faith will show itself in works of righteousness. And then James goes on to use the example of Rahab. How does Rahab show that her faith in God was real? Rahab, to the risk of of her own life, obediently, cooperates with God's program of judgment against her own people. She trusted God. And she demonstrated that trust and that faith by siding with God. And by siding with God's people. But there is something we must take careful notice of when we hear James talking about works. James is not talking about accumulating brownie points or scout badges. We shouldn't have in mind a list of good works that we can accomplish as a sort of a a box-ticking exercise, as if we can stack up some good deeds, and the more good deeds we can produce, then all the more evidence that we have true faith. No, what we must remember is the context in which James is writing. He is writing to believers whose faith has been tried in one way or another. And these trials are to assess the genuineness of their faith. And all along, James has been building to this point. True faith will obey God in the midst and in the face of trials of faith. You see, that is why James uses the examples of Abraham and Rahab The obedience that Abraham and Rahab rendered to God's command was costly. Abraham's obedience made him willing to offer up his own son. Rahab's obedience risked her own life. A man or a woman, a boy or a girl who obeys God, whatever the cost, in the face of the trial of their faith, they demonstrate by their obedience that their faith is a real faith that saves. That's why we need to ask for wisdom as we face trials. That's why we must be diligent hearers and doers of the word. That's why we must selflessly love our neighbor. Because that is what true faith does in the face of trials. It seeks God's will and his wisdom from his word And it does it simply because he says so and because he is good. True faith demonstrates its genuineness in the face of the severest of trials by obedience to the word of God. 
within the broadly evangelical world, experience is often claimed to be the final arbiter, the final judge of a person's profession of faith. If someone has had certain religious or spiritual experiences, then their profession of faith is deemed to be above scrutiny. But then from time to time, we see people who have had wonderful experiences, we see them fall away. What are we to make of this? Well, I've been struck lately by the words that we read from Hebrews 6. According, according to the author of Hebrews, what is it that differentiates the one who falls away from the one who remains steadfast? Now, the writer is not talking about, uh, he's not speaking of those who, have, who lose their salvation. There is no such thing as losing salvation. No, he is referring to one who has never had true faith as opposed to those who have the genuine article. But what is it that differentiates between them? And what is remarkable is that it is not their initial experiences. Just read the experiences of one who eventually apostatizes. The writer to the Hebrews says they have once been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. It reads like an expanded version of those who are represented by the stony ground in Christ's parable of the sower. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. The spiritual and religious experience of those who eventually fall away from the faith, it can appear to be identical to those who have true saving faith. And they can have real and genuine experiences, even real experiences of the Holy Spirit. But the thing to note is that they are not saving experiences of the Holy Spirit. These experiences are not accompanied with saving faith. This shows us that experience is no proof of the true believer's identity. But the writer to the Hebrews, in that passage that we read, he shows us what are the, the marks of true saving faith. And he is in perfect agreement with James. He says in verse 10 of chapter 6, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. What is the mark of true saving faith it is a continuous consistent self-sacrificial costly obedience you might be asking the question how can I be sure that my faith will stand in the day of trial how can I be sure that I have living faith what makes faith living in the first place the answer to that is Jesus Christ. A faith that bears the fruit of good works is a faith that is rooted in Christ Jesus. Faith that is rooted and grounded in Him who is 
as God, the, in him who is God come in human flesh. Faith that is grounded in what he has done, in his great work of redemption accomplished. Faith that is grounded and rooted in the person and work of our all-sufficient Savior. That is true faith. That is living faith that will bear fruit. Faith that says, I count all things but loss in order that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his suffering because he loved me, because he gave himself for me. That is true saving faith. That is faith that will stand when it is tried. That is faith that will put all on the line simply to obey God. That is the faith that will provide the real proof of a true Christian's identity. Amen. Let us join together in prayer. Let us pray. Our great God, we rejoice in your word. We rejoice in the warnings from your word. We pray that we would be those who would tremble at your word. But we pray that we would not tremble as do the demons, but with humility and a contrite heart. And we pray that you would grant each one of us faith in Christ Jesus, a true living and saving faith. We pray that you would be with us for the remainder of this your Sabbath day. Enable us to keep it holy. And may we come together again later with your people to worship you in the evening of your day. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.